Welcome to Canada's podcast. Hi, this is Celine Williams hosting from Ontario for Canada's podcast. My guests today are Timothy Coe, CEO of Entheon, Entheon Biomedical and John Lem, CEO of Lobo Genetics. Thank you both for joining me today. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Um, I am really curious. I love when I have two guests, just for the record, because it's always a fun flow of a conversation. But I'm really curious to hear from each of you um, kind of your journey to get to where you are today and what you're doing in the world. And then as part of that, you can tell us a little bit about what you are doing in the world and explain a little bit about what, you know, what you're up to. Yeah, totally. Um, it's hard for me to describe what Antheon does um, without getting into my personal story. Um, for me, Antheon is uh, sort of a reaction to a, sort of a meta condition that exists within the world as it pertains to addiction medicine. Um, I had a brother that was a multi-decades long drug user for the, over the course of about 20 years. He suffered from a variety of drug addictions, uh, principally opiates and uh, amphetamines, as well as um, other sort of stimulants. Um, and yeah, over the course of those two decades, uh, we really did try to get him all of the help that was medically available to him, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands of hours in uh, psychiatrist offices. Um, and yeah, about three years ago, I became acutely responsible for his care as my parents just didn't know what to do anymore. And over the course of about, oh, I guess that was four years ago, about the two years that I was his primary sort of care contact, um, it was a bit of a case study in terms of like the limitations of the conventional drug treatment models that exist. He was in about five or six different drug treatment centers. Wow. Um, methadone, Suboxone, all variety of other mental health uh, medications like antipsychotics, anxiolytics, uh, antidepressants, <clears throat> and none of it sort of in totality combined or in separate pieces uh, combined with mental health practitioners. Uh, none of it had the effect that was desired um, and rather just treated the symptomology of his condition and made it so that he didn't really have access to that, that inner I guess, narrative, that inner wisdom that's so necessary in unlocking some of these answers about, hey, why do you tick the way that you tick? And I guess um, over the course of that period, um, you know, his state worsened and we actually lost him to an overdose in March of 2019. And so that was really difficult. And, you know, in reaction to that, there was just this sense that there had to be something better, you know, better than what was available. And I think the the huge death count of uh, sort of drug-related deaths uh, experienced in Canada over the course of the pandemic is indicative of the reality that there aren't really good options for people that are suffering from substance use disorder. And so um, there was all this rumbling about psychedelics. And from a personal perspective, I'd use them too to help improve my life. Um, and so, you know, we made it our mission to really seek out the knowledge, uh, the knowledge keepers in the psychedelic space and say, hey, you know, the transformational power of psychedelics, everyone's talking about it. Is there an application for people that are suffering from addiction issues? And the answer was very quickly and resoundingly, yes, the, the transformational potential of psychedelics, um, you know, as it applies to people that are suffering from, you know, end of life anxiety or from depression issues, there's a internal core kernel of significance of profound internal meaning that is, you know, essentially operative in uh, people that suffer from addiction related issues. And so uh, pretty quickly, we went from confirmation of, hey, can psychedelics help people to 
you know, hey, what is the best way to administer this and what's the best molecule? And so ultimately we arrived at uh, DMT for the purpose of treating addiction. And that's what Entheon's core focus is, is research and, and developing uh, ways to administer DMT, dimethyltryptamine for the purpose of treating addiction. But then going beyond that, I think we'll, we'll get into it with John, um, going beyond just this notion of psychedelics as this panacea to treat any and all conditions, but actually really diving into you know, what makes an individual so unique so as to, you know, not just, you know, blanket them with any substance, but really dive into the personalization components encapsulating things like genetics and um, sort of neuroimaging to really develop a personalized treatment program to ensure that we're capitalizing on these, you know, these brave people that are taking this opportunity of willingness to seek treatment and to get well really wanting to capitalize on that opportune moment and deliver a personalized form of care that is most likely suited to um, treat them effectively. So yeah, it's, uh, that's where I come from. I So thank you for sharing all of that. I am sorry to hear about your brother, obviously. And I think I love that I love the personalized lens that you've taken inside of this and that your company's really focused on. Um, because I think that, and John, I'm going to, I'm definitely want to hear your story, but I just want to acknowledge, I think that it's that the more we can make things personal. So we are having the, you know, we get the best results that are as effective as possible. And I know it's super challenging inside of anything to do with healthcare, but there's so much value in taking that, that lens of how do we make this work for the person? So they have the best experience and the best outcome as opposed to what I feel like happens a lot of time, especially if you think about psychedelics in the not medical field, where it's kind of a crapshoot, what someone's reaction is going to be. You're kind of hoping for the best and there just isn't that ability to take the personalized lens. So I just want to acknowledge, I think that's really cool. Um, John, I'd love to hear your story. So not as personal as Tim, but definitely has a personalization aspect. Lobo was originally founded uh, from a conversation with another entrepreneur that just so happened to be a senior executive at Aurora Cannabis. So this was back in 2018. And they one of their components of their business was running actually uh, medical clinics in Canada. And they were consistently noticing that around 10 to 20% of their patients were having stronger side effects than um, like 80% of their, uh, their patient base. And so we sat down and we had a discussion based on my background in genetics. Um, is there a genetic reason why this keeps happening? Why they keep seeing this 10 to 20% of the population that when they dose either THC or CBD for pain or for sleep or for other conditions, why they have more side effects. And so that really um, became global genetics where right around that time, um, cannabis was not recreationally uh, legal yet in Canada. That happened a year later in 2019. And Lobo was originally established to create that personalized aspect to cannabis therapy. And cannabis, um, similar to psychedelics, has it shifted where it was seen as something that was very recreational, mm -hmm. with no therapeutic um, purpose. And it shifted into it's both recreational and there's a therapeutic aspect. And so that was really how Lobo got started. And the transition into the partnership with Entheon was we had built this technology platform for personalization. Um, and we connected with Entheon and they were um, embarking on their journey to personalize psychedelic treatment. And um, Tim's vision of creating personalization through genetics and technology really brought both of us together. 
so completely based on, you know, the, the, whatever that, that anti-drug campaign I remember as a kid in like the eighties, that was huge, right? Like it demonized everything. And we've taken so long to really see the potential and the value. So I just want to acknowledge, I love that, that you have come together in this way that's saying like, Hey, let's really look at what's possible inside of this world and let's remove the stigma from it. And to me, that's, you know, I really appreciate this conversation for that reason. I think it's important to have these conversations out in the open. Um, and especially because like there is real science behind all of this. It's so, I, mean, I, I think that's the critical point that if we start from a perspective of science and benefit to people, uh, you can kind of isolate the history of the past uh, mm-hmm. and focus on what good it can do because uh, the, any drug can be abused, right? Alcohol can be abused. And of course. Like 90% of the population in North America has a drink once a year, like, like consumes alcohol. Uh, so when you look at prohibition that happened in the 1920s and then alcohol is completely normal now, right? And so we, I think we can't, we can't understand uh, the mistakes we're making currently unless we look to the past and understand the history of psychedelics and why it was made illegal um, and the potential benefits now, uh, 20, 30 years later. Yeah. Totally. I think in the absence of, I'm just so pleased that we're returning to the investigation, a uh, science-led investigation of psychedelics, because I think one of the things that we've seen in the absence of psychedelics is the you know, as of now, the conventional approaches to treating things like mental health and addiction related issues that are so heavily reliant on, you know, on pharmacological interventions, various drug therapies. And in spite of this huge optionality in terms of the drug choices that exist, we are still seeing this consistent uptick in, you know, psychiatric uh, disorders as well as addiction. And so, um, you know, to echo what John said, I think there is, it's, it's, it's high time that we're reinvestigating this, but, you know, taking that data driven, that science first approach to really validate. And I do think it is super important to get into the weeds of the science to really present the data. Cause ultimately we are trying to change lives in a very medically necessary kind of way. And so there are, I know we talked about bureaucracy, um, sort of previous to this call as being this. Yeah burdensome and terrible things sometimes, but that bureaucracy does exist for the express intent of ensuring that the drugs that we're creating are safe and effective. And so I do think we exist in this really opportune moment where we have the ability to create this amazing data to validate some of the assumptions that we have. And so really excited to be uh, sort of on that leading edge of scientific discovery. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about what it looks like, like right now, for the work that you're doing, because as, and I'm going to fully ignore, this might be completely ignorant. I'll fully ignore, no problem sounding ignorant on the podcast and acknowledging that this might be an ignorant question, but you know, as far as I know, psychedelics are not legal, whether it's in a medical, you know, uh, whether they're being prescribed, which I don't think they can be because they're not legal. As far as I know, that's my understanding. They are not legal. So how does this work? Like, what is it that you, like, what does this look like for you? What does the future of this potentially look like? I'm really curious because I, it, to me, I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know how it would work. Totally. 
Yeah, no, that's it. And it's a lot has happened and a lot is happening uh, since you know, a few years ago. Um, one of the things that we do, the wind in our sails is, you know, I think there is a perspective change in terms of these things that were once villainized and just are vilified and said, oh, no therapeutic value, just purely for the purposes of, you know, potential abuse and addictive, uh, you know, looking at through the lens of addictive potential. Uh, some of the work that's been done recently over the course of the last decade or so um, has seen a revision of some of those perspectives there. Um, recently, we've had the full approval of a ketamine variant called esketamine um, that has gone through full suite of approvals and is now ready for a prescription that is available for prescription for the purpose of treating um, depression um, and as well as some off-label usage for other mental health indications. Um, and we are seeing the progression of some previously, you know, uh, similarly vilified substances such as MDMA and psilocybin. Uh, they're moving their way through the regulatory uh, process in various stages in phase two and phase three. And so, you know, that bureaucracy that we referred to before, it exists and it is sometimes an arduous cost intensive hindrance, but from the perspective of regulators, there is still a very some seemingly unbiased framework to um, submit drugs into. And so, you know, we are leveraging this classical drug discovery um, so regulatory pathway that is maybe not so informed by some of the historical biases of the past. At least we're seeing a shift in perception that you know, is indicating that there's a really increased willingness to investigate these things or to evaluate these things. Um, and that being the case, you know, what that process is reliant on is academic rigor, scientific rigor, um, and the presence of very clean and understandable data. Um, so companies like ours, um, as well as a variety of other companies are leveraging that system to, yeah, enter into clinical trials um, these various psychedelic compounds for the purposes of treating a variety of mental health indications. And so that goes through the normal course of safety and efficacy trials. And um, the work that we're doing, we have a, a clinical trial plan for Q4 of 2021, extending into 2022, that is yeah, looking at that uh, safety uh, safety uh, component of dimethyltryptamine. And then, you know, the natural course of business will take us to uh, subsequent trials. So, and John, this might be a question for you. I'm not sure, but I'm curious when we talk about, you mentioned the like personalizing, let's call it of the, of the experience. And there's a genetic component inside of this. So what is that? I mean, I'm going to assume, and I might be wrong again, totally fine. If it's an ignorant question, I'm going to assume you're not saying, let me take your genetic Celine and I'm going to create a completely customized drug for you. I assume that's not, if it is very cool, but you know, in light of that probably being unlikely because it would be expensive and time consuming. What does it what does it actually mean to have this genetic component and to to have a person have it be more personalized? So that's a, that's a great question. So I think it really is in two buckets. One is a short term uh, impact and the one is a long term impact. So the short term impact is your sensitivity or metabolism to the drug. This is a well-established area of medicine for personalization where depending on your genetic profile, you can metabolize a drug differently than the person next to you. And you could have a slightly different reaction or potentially a stronger reaction depending on your genetic makeup. And then the second part of it, which is the long-term aspect is, is there parts of your genetic makeup that expose you to potential long-term risks 
for taking these sorts of psychedelic substances because they do affect the mind. So if you think about the discovery and treatment of schizophrenia, psychosis, there is an underlying genetic basis for that, that certain percentages of the population, it's not a very large percentage, but it is um, statistically significant in the one to 5%, mm. they are more predisposed uh, to psychosis or schizophrenia. And then in terms of the met metabolic side or the sensitivity side, again, that's not a huge percentage of the population, but it is still significant. It can be like five to 10% of the population. So one out of every 10 or one of every 20 people that you end up dosing uh, with certain drugs, they can have a, a more strong reaction to it. That as the as the clinical trial where we're starting or eventually hopefully um, clinicians prescribe it, that empowers both the individual and the clinician with that information to make better decisions. Got it. Um, really interesting. So if we, I don't know if this is the, you know, is the next step beyond so you've cl clinical trials coming up that seems like it's kind of the next step of this and are they you know are they specifically focused on well i guess so i guess here's the question is this really about um what you're doing i'm sure there's lots of things in out in the world it's not i know this is a big space and i you know i am a, i am aware that there are lots of people exploring these things in in different ways is your focus really on, is, would the next step be really focusing on various like addictions specifically? Is it more about treatment of other, you know, mental health disorders that people might have? It is a, is it a combination? How would that work? Cause it feels like external lens. I'm not in your world, but it feels like it could be a lot to, <laughs> to take on, you know, this world of like mental health plus psychedelics plus like, it feels like, Oh, this is a, this is big. No, it's a, it's a really great question. And it is, yeah, I think an accurate analysis of the psychedelic space, you know, there are a lot of companies proposing to treat a huge spectrum of psychiatric disorders. And the focus is primarily on addiction related issues. So our first, sorry, I have a dog running around here. This our is, first, this is podcasting real life. You know, this is, <laughs> this is pandemic podcasting, right? We have dogs and phones running around all over the place. Um, and the UNS focus is on addiction. Our first trial is a safety trial, but there is also inclusion for healthy smokers to see if there's a quit smoking signal included within that group. And then subsequently, with as it relates to DMT and DMT-related molecules, we're going to be exploring efficacy of treating um, a variety of these. Each, each addiction population is unique. The opiate addiction population has unique inclusion exclusion criteria uh, separate than an alcoholism uh, population. So on the DMT drug discovery side, we are going to be exploring a multitude of efficacy trials. And that's that's one component of the business. The other component, as John and I have been speaking about, is this notion of personalization. Right. You know, for us, personalization will certainly help inform how DMT is administered, but included within the genetics test that's commercially available now is inclusion for not just serotonergic psychedelics to which DMT and psilocybin and, and things like that exist, there is also inclusion for ketamine. Um, and so some of the investigational work that we're doing is to um, sort of validate the utility of these different metabolism biomarkers, as well as mental health risk factor biomarkers, not just in the realm of DMT, but also 
broadly across this sort of evolving world of psychedelic medicine, uh, because ultimately we do want to create tools that are not just exclusively for the internal use of Entheon, but we do want to respond to this evolving landscape, this therapeutic landscape that's developing, where there are practitioners that are currently working with ketamine. They will be bringing on new molecules like MDMA and psilocybin and one day DMT. We want to make a series of tools that has uh, I guess fulfills a duty of care, as I mentioned, to those people that are brave enough to seek out help, seek out therapy. We want to create something that has immediate utility, not just for DM, uh, Entheon's DMT discovery, but um, for the therapist or practitioner that is on the ground and about to administer something. There's a very important choice, and that choice will become more complex over the, over the course of the next few years as new molecules come online. As someone comes into the office and presents with a series of psychiatric symptoms, you know, the choices will be, hey, is it ketamine? Is it psilocybin? Is it DMT? And depending on how you cut certain issues, some people presume that addiction is underpinned by a PTSD uh, indication. So there are going to be a variety of on-label usages for these medications, as well as a variety of off-label usages. And so we think that there's um, an opportunity as well as an obligation for a company to come in and to help make that prescribing physician's job that much easier so that that patient that is maybe for the first time, maybe for a very limited window of willingness saying, hey, I want to get help, that we make use of that experience and not subject them to many months of failed treatments. And so um, hopefully that answers your question that it, the business is thought of almost in two parts that ultimately do integrate personalization as being this sort of broadly utilitarian thing that we're trying to develop for the industry as it develops. And then that will, of course, uh, sort of dovetail with our DMT-related discoveries uh, specific to addiction. Yeah, no, that is that is actually super helpful because it does uh, it does feel like a, a, like a taken on the world. <laughs> because- yeah, Tim hasn't even explained the other partnership that he has with another Toronto-based company in ECG, Brainwave Monitoring. So that's yeah. like a whole other personalization and try to understand at a you know at a signaling level of the brain how the brain's activating in real time based on psychedelics but yeah i'll let tim talk about that as well because that's another right. area that everyone's working on. It, it's a big meal certainly but you know all things can be eaten one bite at a time and so of course there is a core importance to developing out our you know we believe the dmt is the ideal molecule for psychedelic therapy unlike longer form psychedelics like ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD, where the time of engagement is anywhere from six to eight to 12 hours, depending mm-hmm. on the dose level, and as well as metabolic factors. DMT is actually a very profoundly intense molecule that could be modulated to arrive at a similar effect type or effect uh, intensity as all of those other aforementioned molecules, but it does so in a way that the due to the pharmacokinetics of it, the active half-life or the sort of window of experience is anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. So in these long-form psychedelic experiences, ranging from anywhere from six to 12 hours, you know, as we're dealing with inherently profound, sometimes challenging subject matter, whether it pertains to traumas suffered as a child or through our development, this is inherently difficult stuff to deal with. And sometimes it can be overwhelming to the extent that it becomes medically necessary to intervene Right now with those longer form psychedelics, there is no meaningful way to intervene to uh, cease that experience. And there is no way to titrate that dose once it's mm-hmm. ingested. DMT, on the other hand, once uh, you know the, the way that we're delivering it is intravenously, 
Um, if an individual happens to have one of those intense experiences, we can titrate the dosage, bring the intensity down or stop it entirely, foregoing the need for heavy sedatives or anxiolytics. So that's one side of things. The DMT is a uniquely modulable, controllable, customizable type of uh, drug delivery. Um, but then on the other side of things, uh, as John mentioned, there's uh, certainly a lot that goes into understanding the personalization characteristics. Um, genetics is certainly one thing, and we're finding that metabolism is going to be indicative uh, potentially of whether an individual has a too weak response or a too strong response that ultimately could lead to a non-efficacious type of experience. But we're also understanding that each individual, so I think of it as genetics represent what nature has to provide. This is your basic coding. This is the likelihood that your body will present uh, with these types of physiological reactions. There is also a component that I like to characterize as nurture, where over the course of your development into adult life, you do take on specific brain architecture as characterized and as visible through things like electroencephalogram. Um, EEG is a very lightweight, um, real-time way of measuring brain activity. And we are seeing that there's potential to make assessments as to an individual's cognitive function, their base phenotypes. You know, there are different, just as in the same way there are different personalities, you might have more introverted people, more extroverted people. We do see that there are existing brain phenotypes that are more or less receptive to different types of psychiatric interventions, as well as more or less receptive to um, different drug interventions. And so, um, as John was alluding to, it can get quite large, but the attack that we're taking is uh, we're taking um, indication and molecule specific uh, approaches to investigating this. Uh, we're currently working on some research studies in the world of ketamine, looking at uh, both genetics as well as EEG to better characterize, you know, what is the, I guess, divergence or uh, variability in these different patient populations that are going into ketamine therapy to seeing what the differential response will be from things like ketamine uh, while being dictated by the uh, metabolic differences that are indicated by some of the biomarkers that we're picking up. So, you know, it, it is quite a large uh, undertaking, but we are taking it bite size or one project at a time, trying to get a really granular understanding of what, um, how different brains and different genotypes uh, respond to these different drugs, um, ultimately amassing this massive catalog of knowledge uh, that will hopefully go back into this predictive platform that will ultimately make a physician's job that much easier in terms of assessing and uh, sort of customizing therapeutic designs for individuals. So at some point in the future, is this a, it, like, this may be totally way off base, but is this something that would be that could potentially become like a 23 and me, but for um, like psychiatric use or whatever the case may be, where there is some sort of test where it's like, I mean, if you've done 23andMe, you know, they tell you like, here's your kidney disease, pyruvate, whatever, like they give you this list of all these genetic markers, half of which are like, I don't know what that is, but really interesting, right? So is this something that at some point, I'm not saying it would be come through 23andMe, but where it is seemingly that simple to take some blood of a patient, send it in, get the genetic markers that the psychiatrist or the treating physician can look at that and go, okay, based on this, here's what could potentially be the best outcome so it actually does become that personalized maybe 
You could head there. I, I think. <laughs> I think you're both like, yeah, nope, yeah, that's not the thing. <laughs> me, um, they, they have some interesting, more, I guess, uh, insights like uh, when you eat asparagus, how does your urine smell? Like, what's your coffee sensitivity? Like, yeah. that, that that's more out of interest. Like, uh, I already can tell if I'm sensitive to coffee just by drinking coffee, right? But in, in terms of psychedelics, well, there's no like psychedelics can only be used in the therapeutic setting in clinical trials or medically right now. Um, so I think it's a lot more personalized in the way that that algorithm that Tim refers to, which can be brainwave monitoring, which can be genetics, which can be specific molecules. Um, that is not 23andMe. Like 23andMe is not intended to go to that level of personalization. For but sure. There's lots of examples in the medical community where they do this all the time. Like for example, cancer medications now, there's a lot of cancer, there's some specific cancer drugs is you must do a genetic test before they give it to you. Because oh. they know that um, if you have a certain profile, the drug will just not respond. And so they don't wanna give you hundreds of thousands of dollars on medication and get your hopes up on a drug that has a low probability of responding. And so because mental health, it's, a, it's an art, not a science because it's the brain. Um, we're pulling in all sorts of data points, whether it's genetics, whether it's brainwave monitoring, whether it's therapeutics. And it's, it, they're all, as Tim said, it's like picks and shovels for the clinician to actually come up with the right treatment. Certainly. And data is one thing, but I think there's an importance to how that data is packaged and interpreted. I think, you know, if you were to just look purely at the genetics, it's, it's a very detail oriented and data intensive type of analysis. But I think there's a, there is an importance to the interpretation, the packaging of that data that ultimately does get to a clinically useful, uh, answering clinically useful questions. So, you know, genetics are, we think, uh, a super valuable source of, of insight, but, you know, we do want to provide uh, the most comprehensive base of information that we can. I have two dogs running around. It's here. great. Real okay. life. Real life. I know. Pandemic podcasting. No, absolutely. You know, data is so important. So we're trying to take a multi-tiered approach to data. You know, genetics certainly tells a very comprehensive story, but we think that that could be supplemented by the real life lived reality that is presentable through uh, electroencephalogram. So ultimately, you know, as John mentioned, you know, within the world of oncology, there is already precedent set as to the you know, suitability or appropriateness of certain drug prescriptions. We think that within the world of psychedelics and mental health in general, there is a similar urgency or need for precision uh, because you don't really want to squander that opportunity. You know, um, mental health issues can be oppressive to the point that it becomes um, that the existential conditions of living feel almost as though they're not worth sort of suffering through. And so for that person that is at that decision point of wanting help, um, you know, understanding that, you know, a day lived in depression or a day lived in addiction is uh, sometimes quite agonizing, you know, extending the sort of extent of that suffering is something that we've tried to minimize as much as we can. And we think that taking a very informed data focused approach will arrive at, you know, likely, uh, likely efficacious solutions earlier. Fantastic. Um where can our listeners go to find out more about what you are up to in the world and about you as well as humans? Yeah, please. Um, I encourage anyone that is interested in what we're doing 
uh, to visit us at mdionbiomedical.com, also halogen.com, um, and encourage everyone to, you know, as is, as is typical these days, sign up to our socials. Um, you know, we have so many really interesting and we think very noteworthy and scientifically relevant things in the works. Um, we encourage everyone to sign up for our newsletter to be really in the stream of that information as we develop it. Um, we are working on some amazing things and trying to help a lot of people. So uh, we encourage everyone to uh, sign up and get in the stream of that. Absolutely. Um, so I want to thank you both for taking the time to chat with me today. It's really interesting. I think this is a really valuable conversation and information for people to get about what's happening in this world um, of psychedelics, of this the, these sorts of alternative, alternative, let's call them, but, you know, alternative from what we tend to think of mainstream treatments, um, because it, it's the future of, of medicine and it's the future of of, you know, biotechnology, genetic, like there's so much happening here and it's, it's really cool. So thank you both for taking the time to chat with me. I appreciate it. Um, and absolutely. And for all of the listeners and viewers, thank you for listening to Canada's podcast, like comment and subscribe to all our channels to get the latest podcasts from entrepreneurs across Canada.